Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. It's been a while since FRDH did a Bible study for atheists, but the revelations about the Republican candidate for Senate in Alabama, Roy Moore, sent me to my bedside King James Bible to try and understand, not for the first time, how the most religious part of America is also the most blasphemous. And Alabama really is the most religious part of the country. According to a 2016 survey by Pew Research, Alabama ranked first in the nation for religiosity. 82% of its people say they believe with absolute certainty in God, and nearly three-quarters of Alabamans say they pray to him every day. Yet many in that state are still lining up to support a man who acknowledges preying on underage girls and just generally falling short of all moral precepts contained in the Bible. I'm not surprised. I spent some time in the South and have a good sense of the Southern religious mindset. It imposes itself on visitors. Even an atheist needs a modicum of biblical knowledge and language to have conversation with Southerners. This is why, when I think of Moore and all the other public or political Christians who have been caught out in scandals, I think of blasphemy. Isn't it blasphemy to present yourself to the world as a godly person while behaving in ways that depart from all moral teaching? And isn't blasphemy a terrible sin? St. Thomas Aquinas thought it a worse sin than murder. Anyway, coming through the Bible, by way of a Google search, I must admit, I tried to find the best passage that defines blasphemy. Turns out blasphemy is written about much more in the New Testament, and I will get to that later, but the concept's origins are in the fourth commandment, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. That's a pretty stark injunction. We Hebrews don't even say the name for fear that it will be heard as taking it in vain. We use the word name, Hashem, to refer to our deity. I know Roy Moore knows that rule by heart because he came to national notice for hanging a copy of the Ten Commandment tablets in his courtroom when he was first elected a judge in 1993. He also started each day's session with a prayer. In a country whose constitution separates church and state, he was intentionally stirring controversy. He told the Atlantic Monthly at the time, I wanted to establish the moral foundation of our law. Doubtless, but he probably also wanted a bit of notoriety, which he duly received when the American Civil Liberties Union sued him in 1995, saying the overt religious displays in his courtroom were unconstitutional. A few months later, same year, 1995, I was discussing more in the separation of church and state in a hamlet outside Tupelo, Mississippi, about 40 miles from the Alabama state line. The settlement, for really wasn't much more than that, was an assortment of double-wide mobile homes on half-cleared lots near a crossroads off a spur of the interstate. Glenn McCulloch, a wealthy Tupelo businessman and Republican Party organizer, had been showing me the metropolitan area, and when I asked to meet with an evangelical preacher, because they all vote Republican, he took me out to meet the Rev. He urged me to take into account that these were country people with ideas I might find a little backward. The Rev and I had a pleasant visit. 
He lived in a regular ranch house with a finished basement, a man cave, as they weren't yet called. We talked about a lot of stuff, but mostly about religion. He wasn't backward at all, just a man of his faith. We spoke about the Roy Moore controversy, of course, separation of church and state, but other stuff related to faith. His denomination was a splinter of a splinter of a splinter of a Pentecostal group. If there is one hallmark of Christianity in the South, it is its massive fragmentation. Not a lot of fraternal love theologically among the godly down there. We went over the usual subjects, including creationism. Criticizing the facts of evolutionary science, the Rev played a verbal game with me. You believe in science. Well, yes, I believe that science, the scientific method, does allow people to find out and establish facts about the physical world. I believe the accumulation of facts leads us to the truth about how long the Earth has existed, about the billions of years before life emerged, the hundreds of millions of years after that until Homo sapiens made his entrance. You believe that, he said. You can't know for a hundred percent certainty that it's true, he said, trying to sow some doubt. It's your belief, your faith. In fact, you have a religion, he went on. It's called secular humanism. He even gave me the name of some philosopher who had coined the phrase and written a book about it, my Bible apparently, and in his words, founded the religion. I'd never heard of this person, and at the time hadn't heard the phrase secular humanism. I explained to the Rev if he needed to use the word secular, I was a secular Jew. We went back upstairs and had lunch with his wife and young children. We all held hands round the table, as Grace was said. The Rev told me I was the first Jewish person who had ever been in his house. I hope I made a good impression. Although we disagreed about everything, our conversation was completely amiable, and what I remember most about it was the Rev's absolute certainty in his faith. Faith in his certainty. I don't understand that about America's political Christians. Faith has a flip side. Doubt. What meaning can true faith have if you're not assailed by doubt at the same time? Scientists have their skepticism, so they keep pushing forward in their explorations. Don't all religious acts and devotions require a struggle to assert themselves against doubt if they are to be something other than rote behaviors? Where can humility before God and all his creatures come from without doubt? Mark chapter 9 Verse 24, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. The Rev was a prime example of the kind of Protestantism that took root in the New World as the British Crown granted charters of land to dissenting religious sects. Faith without doubt. The geographical distance between England and the American colonies made it inevitable that religion would develop differently. It exaggerated the tendencies of Puritan dissent and certainty into faith without doubt. Harvard University was founded in 1636 as a theological seminary to train clergy, dissenting in outlook, because England was a long way away and the Atlantic crossing uncertain. At one point in the first century of Harvard's existence, half the graduates became ministers, Today, half the graduates go to Wall Street. Perhaps the university's slogan should be Harvard, serving God and mammon for 400 years. In the South, religious evolution was less intellectually grounded. 
In the 18th century, Protestants arrived in large number from what is today Northern Ireland, forced away from Ulster by new English laws that were intolerant of dissenting sects, the new arrivals moved inland from the already populated eastern coastal cities and pushed the colonial frontier westward over the Appalachian Mountains into what is today Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, the Bible Belt. These colonists had no time to set up seminaries. The clergy generally assumed their positions by laying on of hands and communal acknowledgement. Perhaps in these circumstances, to attract a community of faith, it was necessary to project a sense of belief that brooked no doubt. Certainty of faith extended to understanding the Bible. If the Bible is the literal word of God, as they believed back then, and many down there still believe, then the world as you find it is the world he, with a capital H, ordained. By the way, that's as good an explanation for the conservatism of the South as I can dream up. If that world is based on slavery and white supremacy, there are passages in the Bible to justify those things. Of course, doctrinal disputes, or personal disputes dressed up as doctrinal arguments were inevitable out there on the frontier. They tended not to end in compromise. Groups constantly broke away to form their own sects, hence the extraordinary fragmentation of Protestant worship in the South. In dozens of settlements, this led to variations of practice, snake handling, for example, and a bewildering array of denominations, Pentecostal, free will, Baptist, that's not three sects, but one. There's one church, the Pentecostal Free Will Baptist Church, and it combines ideas from all three. The worst intolerance for fellow Christians in the South was that reserved for Catholics. It was a replay of the tensions back in Ulster. Doesn't mean these vociferated forms of Protestantism didn't borrow from Catholicism, like the idea of confession. Love the sinner, hate the sin, is what they say. All manner of wickedness is forgiven in evangelical communities by public recantation and penance, not the confessional booth and private assignment of acts of contrition by a priest, but communal and public ceremony, being baptized, born again. But this forgiveness, combined with faith without doubt, easily leads the egotistical, like Roy Moore, to blasphemy. Blasphemy as described by Paul in his second epistle to the Thessalonians, verses 3 and 4. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself, that he is God. It's a bit obscure, that passage, but I think one way to understand it is that it speaks to those who set themselves up as knowing more than anyone else what God really wants. In a society of faith, without doubt, people like Moore pop up all the time. Men like him deceive by any means. They seek to be idolized, or worshipped. They sit as God in their courtrooms or on their televised ministries, but their sins are eventually revealed. 
A somewhat clearer definition of blasphemy comes from the dictionary compiled by America's first lexicographer, Noah Webster, himself a devout Christian of the dissenting tradition. Blasphemy is an injury offered to God by denying that which is due and belonging to him, or attributing to him that which is not agreeable to his nature. It would seem that any man in his early thirties who tries to seduce a fourteen-year-old girl for the purpose of fornication, as Roy Moore did, and then builds his life and career on a platform of being religious, is injuring God. He is a blasphemer, plainly. As for Moore's supporters, guided by faith without doubt to endorse such a man, I find myself thinking of the words of another Puritan dissenter, Oliver Cromwell, in his letter to the General Assembly of the Kirk of Scotland in 1650. Some of you probably know these words as well. I beseech you in the bowels of Christ, think it possible that you be mistaken. I also think of the less well-known words that follow them, words that invoke doubt on the destination of the souls of those most certain of their faith. There may be, as well, a carnal confidence upon misunderstood and misapplied precepts, which may be called spiritual drunkenness. There may be a covenant made with death and hell. Quite a warning. Like I said earlier, the Christianity practiced in the American South has a way of imposing itself, even on the mind of an atheist, I don't think there is a heaven or hell, or I don't believe there is a heaven or hell. You choose. But if I was inclined that way, I am fairly certain of Roy Moore's destination in the afterlife. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more of my reporting from the American South over the last 25 years at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit, and while you're there, make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.